Father, we come to you thankful for your Son, who is our firm foundation. Everything we do is for him. We thank you for his death, his substitution for our sins. But we also thank you for his teaching and how he taught us the kingdom of God, and he teaches us how to live like him. We're thankful for the Gospel of Luke and the picture of Jesus that is shown to us, and I pray that you'll give us the courage and conviction to live out the lessons learned, and that this message will help. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, an internship is a temporary job or role usually related to someone's field of study or um, interest Uh, that really gives somebody practical experience so that they could do the job later on. Have you guys ever had an internship? Who's ever had an internship, right? Student teachers, right? I, I was an intern at Grace Bible Church in Boise, Idaho as a pastoral intern. Uh, the arrangement was they sent me down to seminary, and every summer I would come up, and I was shown the ministry. Now, when I, when I was at seminary, I learned, you know, Greek, Hebrew, theology, hermeneutics, all these other classes, but it was one thing to just kind of learn all the content, right? It's kind of like learning Spanish, but never having a chance to speak to a Spanish speaker, right? At some point in time, you have to kind of go, go live, and that was the design of the internship. So I would sit in on a funeral planning session. I'd watch the pastor do a funeral. I would sit in on elder meetings, staff meetings. They would talk about ministry. I would watch counseling sessions. Uh, and we would talk theology, and it, it, it was great. And then they ratcheted up a level where I actually had to preach a sermon. The pastors helped me write a sermon, and this was a church that had two other church plants, and so I had to preach at one church, then another church, and then another church, And then they would all listen to each sermon, give me feedback, and then I would preach again. I mean, it, it was a great experience. But when you look at what an internship is designed to do, it's designed to kind of round out your education, right? It's one thing to be taught. It's another thing to kind of be shown. But then there's some lessons that you can only learn by doing it, right? Those of you with an academic background who teach, right? It's teach, show, do. Now, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was a strategic thinker. He knew that his ministry would be three years in length, at the end of which he would ascend up into heaven. And so for the ministry to continue, what must he do? He must appoint and train successors. And so we see in, in the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse For our chapter 4, verses 43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So he begins his ministry by teaching, and as he is teaching, he is collecting followers, like Peter, like Matthew, and others. He's getting a group of disciples together who embrace his teaching. And then he takes it to another level, where of these disciples, he appoints apostles, 12 chosen men who will succeed him in ministry. 
And they are able to watch him do various miracles. Remember the last miracle we talked about, the raising of the 12-year-old girl? Peter, James, and John come into the room with him. They watch him do the miracle. They are being shown the ministry. And now in chapter 9, you see an internship. He's going to send them out on a short-term mission. And as he does so, he gives them some lessons to be learned along the way. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this who is about, about whom I, I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, right now, we are at the halfway point of Jesus' ministry, right? He's, you know, he's kind of at the crest of the hill, about to go over the hill, and down towards his appointed hour where he will be crucified, right? The time is drawing near. Now, previous, there was some opposition to him. Uh, many of the religious leaders were, were, were very concerned that he was healing on the Sabbath. Right, A man with that kind of power who's healing on the Sabbath and breaking Sabbath rules, we're not sure if we can trust him. But now his ministry is about to get even more popular. He's about to do his most popular ministry, the one that everybody loved, right? the feeding of the 5,000. And before everyone gets carried away, he's going to tell them in Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed on the third day, be raised. So he is very serious about developing a succession plan. And part of the succession plan is to train his disciples. He's taught them, he's shown them, and now he sends them out on a trial run. They will be on their own. We know that they'll be paired up maybe with another disciple. Jesus won't be there with them, but they are commissioned to do a short-term ministry trip. And as they go out, there's seven lessons they are to learn as they are doing ministry. They are to heed the call, harness the power, preach the word, trust God for provision, be content with provision, the provision, use discernment, and expect a response. These are lessons that are learned in the context of ministry. Now, I realize that I'm speaking to a mixed audience. Some of you are very, very involved in ministry. 
you are doing ministry, and hopefully this message will help shape how you're doing ministry, that you're learning these lessons along the way. Some of you, um, perhaps you're new to this church or you're new to the faith, you need to get a start in doing ministry, and I hope that this will encourage you to do so. And then maybe some of you might be, um, your ministry might be dormant right now, and there might be reasons for it. I understand that sometimes there might be a situation in life where it's very difficult for you to do it, but then maybe there's others who you really need to start signing up for an internship, right? To do the short-term ministry, to seek the training you need to be effective, to really serve as a disciple of Jesus. All this to say, there's limits to what I can do on a Sunday morning, right? There's a limit to what I can do here. I can teach you. But that's why we have a community that helps to show how these things work out and a community in which you can actually do these kinds of ministries. So as you do, there's seven lessons to learn. Number one is you heed the call. Look at verse one. And he called the 12 together. Now there's a couple callings implied here. Number one, he calls them for a mission trip, right? He calls them because he's about to send them out. Now, the reference to the 12 implies a previous call, that they were called to be the 12 apostles. Right in Luke 6, 12 through 16, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when the day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And so these 12 were apostles, they were sent ones, they were to minister on his behalf to be successors, right? So one, he called his 12 to obedience, they were called to be apostles, they were set apart for basically vocational ministry, and of these who were called apostles, they were also called disciples. They were called to pick up their cross and follow Jesus, right? So you have three calls. The call to obedience right away, the call to be in vocational ministry, and the call to be a disciple. And inherent in all of that is a glad, willing submission to the call that Jesus Christ has for your life. See, all those who minister have been called, right? The first call is the call of God to faith and salvation. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then you see the famous golden chain, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his sons in order that he might be firstborn among the brothers. So being called is a call to salvation. And when you're called to salvation, there's another call. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he didn't just call you to save you. He called you for a special purpose, to do good works. And Jesus clarifies the context of these good works in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority has in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So if you're called to be a Christian, you're called to good works. And if you're called to good works, it's in the context of the great commission of making disciples of all nations. The very first lesson that any disciple needs to learn is one of obedience. What Jesus says, you do. When Jesus gives a command, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It is the most important command in your life. Your life is built around it. In this case, the 12, they dropped everything to follow Jesus. There's no time constraints. There's no other obligations. Jesus is number one in their life. They heed the call. That is the first bedrock principle of discipleship. You heed the call. And in this case, they're called to go out. But they're not going to go out alone. Verse 2, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. How would he like that kind of power? Now, why is he giving them this kind of power? They are to represent Jesus' ministry in its current state right now. And as we just saw in chapter 8, his ministry was healing diseases, and it was casting out demons. He gives them that same power so that they can do the same works and give the same message. He is calling them to a certain ministry and he gives them the power to fulfill that. Now, sometimes you can look at this and you think, wouldn't it be great to be able to cast out demons and heal diseases, right? Imagine the kind of outreach that we could have. We could set up camp before the emergency, you know, set up camp outside of Newman's and say, hey, I see that you got a high fever. Why don't you come over here and we'll heal you? And then while we're at it, we're going to tell you this message. I mean, if we really had that kind of power, I mean, that would be a powerful testimony, right? But Jesus actually promises a, a greater power. In Matthew, I'm sorry, in John uh, 14, 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So what can be greater, right? Notice that word, greater works than these, greater than healing sickness, greater than casting out demons. He's going to give you the power to do greater works. As we skip ahead to the sequel of Luke, Acts chapter 1, starting verse 4, while he was staying with them, Jesus staying with the disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then skipping to verse 8, Jesus tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when you think about it, when you see a body healed, right, the health of that body is restored. But there is a greater power out there that when you share the gospel, what happens to the human heart? The heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. A man or a woman destined for hell is rerouted towards heaven. A life is completely transformed. 
what is the greater miracle? Right? So the commission that he's given us, he also gives us the power. The Holy Spirit resides in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are being changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And when you share the gospel and that person believes that they are born again and transformed, there is a spiritual resurrection that takes place. That's the greater power. The Holy Spirit assists you in your ministry. So when you go out, you're not going out in your own power. It is the power that God has given you. It's greater than what Jesus just gave the disciples. Do you believe that? And thirdly, he calls them to preach the word. I want you to notice the word order here. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Right? You proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. One precedes the other. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, all right, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, right? We want this kingdom that's up here where Jesus is reigning to come down to earth, right? There's an insinuation that it's not here yet. We're waiting for a cosmic invasion where the clouds are rolled back like a scroll, Jesus will come down, he will establish his reign here on earth. He will rule, and get this, when he rules, Satan will be vanquished, all his enemies will be vanquished, the curse will be pulled back. You know, that's why all this healing is really a preview of that, right? Satan being vanquished, the demons being cast out, the curse being rolled back, people having resurrected bodies, right? The healing full scale, all of that is something that we anticipate that we want to have come. It's where Jesus is going to reign and he'll have no rivals. Now here's the deal. When Jesus comes back, all his enemies will be conquered. And so part of this kingdom message is, is basically giving an opportunity to tell people you can surrender now or surrender in the future. Right? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Surrender now or surrender in the future. In the end, Everybody surrenders, Satan surrenders, and what happens to him? Right, he's cast out. What happens to us when we surrender right now? Well, we're on the winning team. That is the message. It sounds very familiar. Look at verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Preaching the kingdom of God is the same thing as preaching the gospel. Ultimately, this ministry is to be built on preaching. As we go ahead to Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, he doesn't give them the power to heal and cast out demons, but he does tell them that they need to preach the gospel. See, ultimately, all ministry is built on preaching the gospel, a preaching ministry. Soup kitchens are great. Helping the poor is wonderful but it must be subservient to actually preaching the gospel. What's more important? Seeing a hungry belly fed or a soul be transformed, right? And all of those works are good. Political activism is good. Social justice is good. But it's a distant second to preaching the gospel and preaching the kingdom of God. That has to be the primary driver of ministry, right? Go ahead and heal. Go ahead and cast out demons. But above all, preach 
the kingdom of God. Preach the gospel. That is the centerpiece of your ministry. It is a preaching ministry. The fourth, you need to trust God to provide. This is really interesting. And he said to them, verse 3, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. Don't take any extra stuff. Don't go home and pack. Don't get an extra change of clothes. Just go as you are. Now, imagine that we decided to do a mission trip to an Indian reservation in New Mexico. And we need a certain amount of people to make this work. So we go in front of the congregation and we say, listen, we are one person short. We need a volunteer to come forward for this mission trip. You sense the Lord working on your heart. Decide, you know what? I need to go. So you come to me after the service and you say, I decided to go. I'm like, great, the van leaves in five minutes. Well, Pastor Dave, um, I ought to go home and pack. Don't worry about it. Well, shouldn't I go home and get a change of clothes? No, you can just go. Should I pack some food? Don't worry about it. Do you see what is happening there? It's instantaneous obedience. Don't worry about the logistics. You focus on the mission given to you. And if God has called you and given you the power to do this, he will give you the provisions to do this. You see, ultimately, when we preach about this invisible kingdom that's going to come to earth, it's something that we don't see. It's not something that we can perceive. It's not something that's empirically verifiable, right? We embrace it on what? On faith. We read in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is an assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if we are going to preach this message about the necessity of faith, wouldn't it make sense that we have faith as we do it? See, this is not a normative thing that Jesus is doing. He, he does command elsewhere that you go ahead and take your provisions and go ahead and plan. Paul undoubtedly did that. But for this specific internship, they are to trust God to provide because he knew that they needed to see him provide in action. Right? So you trust God to provide. And then when he does provide, you need to be content with the provision. He says in verse 4, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now, one of the means that God's going to use to provide is hospitality. It's very common in that day and age for a traveling teacher to come into town and be welcomed into a house. Now, different scenario. You go overseas to Brazil on a mission trip. And while you're there with your teammates, they decide that they're going to have you stay in different people's homes. So you get the privilege of staying with the pastor. They live in a humble home, without windows, without air conditioning. You sleep on a mat on the floor. But you know what? The pastor and his wife feel honored that they are able to host you. And so you stay there. You have wonderful, warm conversations with them. Now, your friend is staying at one of the elders' homes. It's a very big home that backs onto the beach. They're eating steak every night. He sleeps in his own bedroom in a queen bed with air conditioning. 
And guess what? There's another room. And they tell you, would you like to stay at the elder's house? What do you do? Well, of course. But then you have to remember what you're there for. Are you there for a vacation? Are you there to do ministry? Jesus doesn't want his disciples to kind of get caught up in a game of bigger and better. The goal is not to have the most comfortable accommodations. The goal is to preach the kingdom of God. Don't worry about it. If you got a place, be content. That is God's provision for you. Don't try to get more than God's providing. And I'll tell you, I've known many ministers who have flamed out because they were never content with the provisions that God provided for them. They always wanted more. They might be jealous of the congregation that I don't make as much money as them. But the whole point of doing ministry is not to be enriched in this life, right? It's about being rewarded and enriched in the life to come. Whatever God provides, that's his provision. Are you content with it? Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Has he given you those things? Well, there you go. So there to travel light, go out preaching and teaching. But then he gives this command that you are to use discernment. Verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So you're preaching the gospel, you're doing all these things, and then people decide, you know what, we've had enough. And so you leave the town, and you, you kind of kick off your shoes. You want to get all that dust off your sandals. The, the idea was when, let's say, a, a holy man, a, a pious Jew was traveling through Gentile territory, where people rejected the God of Israel, they would just shake off all the dust because they didn't want to bring that contamination back into the promised land. And so the idea is when people are rejecting this, even in Israel, right, you shake off the dust. It's a sign of you reject this message about the kingdom of God. You are now rejected from the kingdom of God. That's the lesson. And they're to use discernment. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. When the gospel is met with scorn and contempt, there is a place for moving on. I was training someone on how to share their faith uh, at the inner being, and a new person walked in. We started up a conversation. We asked him if, you know, just a basic question, what do you believe happens to you when you die? And he told us, well, I believe that we turn into robots. And then he called us stupid for not realizing this. Now, what do you do at that point? When something's so left field, there, there is so much scorn, do you just continue the conversation and explain that we don't turn into robots? I mean, there's a place when somebody heaps contempt and scorn on the gospel, you just shake the dust off your feet. That's often when you look at the book of Acts, when they were met with persecution, 
when there is open contempt for the gospel, that was a way of moving people on to a different ministry. And, and I think what it goes to show you is, is that the people's responsiveness is often determinative of where you plant your flag. If there is open contempt, people don't want to hear it, then you move on. And frankly, sometimes we really care about these people. We really love these hogs and dogs. We really want to see them come to know the Lord. But at some point in time, your investment in this hard soil, you know, the, the road is distracting you from seeing that the Lord actually wants you to move on. You've got to use discernment. You've got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. And know when to... Okay. I see there's a lot of you who listen to non-Christian music. <laughs> we'll keep it a secret between us. Right? How people respond and knowing that, that's wisdom. And that's what Jesus wants for them. And then you expect a reaction. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Right? They do as they're told. They're sent out on their internship. They're preaching everywhere. And then you see the response. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Now keep in mind, it was a one-man show for a while, whereas Jesus and his disciples, and then he has multiplied himself, right? Six different teams are going out there, and the whole of Judea and this whole region of Galilee is a buzz. Now Herod the Tetrarch, he was the son of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? He is the one who put a hit on baby Jesus. He wanted to take him out before he could challenge his kingship. Well, when he died, his kingdom was subdivided into four sections, and Herod the Tetrarch got a fourth of them, and he's over the king. He's over this region of Galilee. And he is intrigued because you have this pious peasant who has his great following, and now his influence is multiplying, and he's concerned, right? Tyrants are concerned about populist movements. And so he's trying to figure out who this person is. And there's three running theories. Number one, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some Elijah had appeared, and by others, one of the prophets of old had risen. Right? The first one is John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. So this prophet of God who was preaching the word, he died, John the Baptist the gray, and his return, John the Baptist, the white, with healing powers. Secondly, Elijah had returned. The prophet never died. It was believed from Malachi that he would return. Perhaps this, this pious peasant is Elijah, or perhaps it's some other prophet who had been raised from the dead. Those are the three running theories, and it's interesting that John the Baptist fixed, I'm sorry, Herod fixates on one prophet, that is John the Baptist. John I beheaded. John I beheaded. You guys remember the story? John the Baptist was preaching out against Herod for taking his brother's wife for committing incest. So, Herod has him arrested. 
Then he throws this drunken dinner party. He's in a jolly state in front of all of his friends, and he brings out his stepdaughter to do basically an exotic dance. He loves it. And as they're all clapping and applauding or whatever you do after that, he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom, right? Making this boast in front of all his rowdy friends. Well, she goes back, talks to her mother, and they come back, and she says, okay, stepdaddy, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, what's Herod to do? He already made this promise. And so he severs the head of John the Baptist, presents it on a platter, and now he's haunted by that. It's kind of like Banquo's ghost from Macbeth, right? You take out a guy, and you're always wondering if he's going to come back and get you. And I think what that reveals is that Herod's conscience is troubled. There's something happening in Herod where he's very bothered by this. This was his great crime that he did. He killed a holy man to appease his immoral wife and immoral stepdaughter. You see, when, when you preach thy kingdom come, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to settle all accounts, that throws gasoline on a guilty conscience. You ever thought about that? Romans 2, 14 through 15. For when the Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When you talk about sin, when you talk about judgment, why is it that the world does not like that? It's because deep down they know, I have done bad things. I have had bad thoughts. I have skeletons in my closet. And this is conviction and it's guilt and it gets a reaction. You see, when you share the gospel, you're basically you know, pulling the pin on the grenade and throwing it into people. And you're going to get all kinds of reactions. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16 that the gospel impacts people in various ways. To one, the fragrance of death to death, and to the other, the fragrance of life to life. And I've taught on this before, but the context is in the Roman triumph. Roman triumph was the highest military honor that a Roman general could receive. When they had some great victory for Rome, they would organize a parade, and he would be brought into the center of Rome, being pulled by four horses while he's on his chariot, wearing a garland, having, uh, being preceded by, by the Senate and other magistrates by captive soldiers who are about to meet their end in the Colosseum. He would be accompanied by the victorious soldiers. And all the while, they're sacrificing bulls and incense. And the idea is that for those who are about to be executed, that incense is the smell of death, of judgment. When you share the gospel with some people, they're not going to like it. Has that ever happened to you? People turn cold when you really get specific about the gospel. But then when you share to, with some, it's the smell of victory. They will surrender now so they won't have to surrender in the future. 
I mean, I'm amazed at how much loyalty some people have towards me because I shared the gospel with them, right? It has that kind of impact. It makes lifelong friends or enemies. You expect an impact. People aren't going to be neutral on it. And so here is Herod. He's asking, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. He became a seeker. He wanted to know more, but eventually he consented to his death. You see, in all of this, there will be a reaction. He's sending them out on the short-term mission trip, and he's telling them, prepare yourself for the results. So when we look at this and, and all those lessons that we learned, there are lessons that can only be learned in the context of doing ministry. Agreed? Like, I can lecture you all you want about the need to trust God. But the best way of, of learning to trust God is to actually trust God. I can talk to you all about how the Lord will provide, but the only means of really learning how the Lord will provide is putting yourself in a position where the Lord has to provide. You know, there, there is a sense where for you to mature as a Christian, to really understand these lessons, you have to put yourself where you are a doer, where you are a, a, a doer. And this is why online church doesn't work. When you watch online church and you're a part of online church, the only thing that you can do is be taught. You can't be shown and you can't do. So the fact that you guys are all in this room, that's great, right? Because you can do more. You can be shown and you can do. So how do you put yourself in a position where you are in a better position to actually do the ministry, where you're entrusted with the responsibility of ministry. Well, number one, if you want those kinds of opportunities, you have to be the right kind of person. If you want ministry responsibility, if you want people to try you out, if you want to be given an opportunity to do some significant ministry, you have to show yourself as somebody who has a heart for ministry. And this is what I look for. Does a person show up when the Bible's being taught? Do they show up when the Bible's being taught? Do they look for every opportunity to be taught? Do they participate? Does a person have an informal ministry? Do they seek to build relationships with other people to encourage them? Do you have to tell them this is what you do? Or are they trying to... Well, the Bible says I need to encourage one another, so I'm going to focus on encouraging people. Uh, I really have a heart to share my faith, so I'm going to try to do that. Now, when you have somebody who's doing that, it's easy to give them more responsibility. They don't want to just meet with somebody for status. They want to meet with somebody to really learn. You also look for somebody who's trustworthy and reliable. When you make an appointment with them, do they actually have enough self-discipline to actually show up at that appointment at the given time? When you give them an assignment to do, do they fulfill it, right? Those are the people who are being given more opportunities. And so if you're somebody who wants an opportunity, you need to show yourself as someone who is faithful, available, and teachable. Secondly, there needs to be an emphasis on equipping with those who are capable of equipping. 
Now, every parent knows that it's much more efficient for you to clean your child's room, right? You can do in five minutes what will take them an hour and a half with your constant chiding and threatening and spanking. So why do you take the time to do that? Because in the long run, you're sacrificing efficiency now for multiplication in the future. And so, yes, it might be easier for you to just plan the woo all by yourself. It might be easier for you to just teach the Bible study, to just start counseling so-and-so. But sometimes you need to just slow down, become inefficient to give people an opportunity to do what you're doing. And then thirdly, you need to be patient. Rookies make rookie mistakes. Remember that internship? There were two other interns with me. I think there either three or four. And we all had a chance to preach at the churches. I remember one of the interns preached at the mother church. I was there. He was the first one to go, by the way. And he preached an hour and a half sermon. He was given 50 minutes and he preached an hour and a half sermon. Can you imagine if an intern came in here and went 40 minutes over time? I mean, we would have banged the gong, said, you know, get out of there. And I was there for the sermon review with him. They made sure that the other interns were there. And I just kind of sat quietly, like, you know, eating the popcorn, you know, what's going to happen? And man, they laid into, I mean, needless to say, I did not go over time. I like cut it short by five minutes just to make sure. But do you know what they did with him? They actually let him preach again. They let him preach again. You see, it does mean you have to give people second chances. If you want to have an excellent ministry where everything's polished and wonderful, you'll never raise up the next generation. Sometimes you have to take a chance, and sometimes those chances preach 40 minutes long. Well, actually, it won't happen here because I've learned some lessons. <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying? There, there has to be an objective that we don't want this to be like the best church and the best experience for us every Sunday. But we understand that sometimes you step back to allow other people to develop and be form, fully formed. I mean, so in all of this, I can't emphasize enough that if you want to reach the next level of your spiritual development, you need to go from being a disciple to a discipler. From somebody who's ministered to, to somebody who ministers. From someone who benefits from other people taking care of you to someone who takes responsibility for others. And there's plenty of opportunities to do this. In fact, I have a great application for this. If you want a short-term, one-week ministry internship, oh, you know where I'm going with this. For one week of your life, you learn how to do children's ministry. You sign up for VBS. Isn't that a great idea? But then you build on that. You go ahead and say, yeah, go ahead and sign me up for VBS. Oh, and I'll go ahead and sign up for children's ministry. Because if you can work with children, who can't you work with? You can't be afraid to sign up. You can't be afraid of the responsibility. And then those who are leading the ministry, it has to be a collaborative, collective effort to give people opportunities to really grow and change. So in all of this, these are great lessons for us to learn. 
But to really embrace it, right, you have to learn it in the context of doing ministry. And what this means is that all of us need to sign up for the internship, right? Either we run the internship or you participate in the internship. But for this church to move on to the next generation, that's exactly what needs to happen. So let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you thankful for the ministry lessons that can be learned. And Father, I thank you for the clear teaching, but I pray that we will go and do more, that we will want to be shown these lessons and experience these lessons in the context of ministry. And Lord, for those who are able, I pray that you will give them the opportunity to deepen their commitment, to share in the responsibility, and to participate in the great work of gospel ministry that you've called us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.